You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Well, the dictionary defines the word mystery as something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. I'll say that again. So the the dictionary um, defines the word mystery as something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. I think as human beings, we love mysteries. We love secrets, right? We love these kinds of things. If I want my kids to get excited about something, kind of a surefire way to do that is to ask them the question, do you guys want to know a secret? Do you want to know a secret? Do you, here's a mystery. Will you guys help me figure this out? Well, when it comes to the Bible, when we talk about God, there are many things about God which are mysterious, meaning that they are difficult or impossible to understand or explain. For example, why did God create the duck-billed platypus? Was it just for his own entertainment? Was it for our entertainment? It'd be nice to know. It's kind of a mystery. Or on a more serious note, though, there are other mysteries. Why does God allow certain things to happen? Or why does God allow that certain things do not happen? Well, why is that? God knows why, but to us, it's a mystery. It's something that's difficult or impossible to understand or explain. But there is at least one mystery which has been revealed to us, which for ages prior to this, for generations, was hidden, which has now been revealed. Do you want to know what the secret is, what the mystery is? Here's the mystery. It's a question. Is God just, meaning fair, or is God merciful? Is God just or is God merciful? Is God a divine judge or is God a loving father? Does God give people what they deserve or is God gracious and forgiving? Which one is it? See, it's a mystery, and here's why. Because sometimes in the Bible, God talks about how he will surely punish the wicked for the wicked things that they do. And, and even in our recent time, as you know, there have been just horrific acts committed, uh, acts of terror, acts of violence, acts of murder. The world, as we look around, is full of corruption and injustice. It's true that innocent people suffer, that people lie, they cheat, they steal, and as a result, sometimes they prosper. How is that fair? It's not fair. And if we look at these things, we can't help but desire that there would be justice. Where is the justice? In fact, the promise, right, is that when the, the true king comes, he will be a king of justice and righteousness. And God promises there will be justice. He says that he is the God who sees the injustice in the world, and he will not just ignore it. He won't just sweep it under the carpet. He won't let people get away with the things that they seem to get away with. There will be a day of reckoning. And while that is comforting, the more you think about it, the more you realize it's also a bit disturbing. It creates a problem because if God is going to judge everyone for every wrong thing they've ever done, well, that creates a problem for me and probably creates a problem for you. Because listen, I've never killed anybody, but I've certainly done some wrong things. I'm sure that you have too. But the hope of the Bible is that God is merciful and forgiving. But here's the problem. If God is merciful and forgiving, then what happened to the justice? Doesn't the idea of mercy, which means not giving someone the punishment they deserve, doesn't that contradict the idea of justice, which means giving someone exactly what they deserve? Or think about it the other way. Doesn't God's severity, right, the fact that God promises to punish sin, doesn't God's severity contradict the idea that God is loving and gracious and merciful? 
Here's another question for you, another mystery. It is a loving and gracious God who forgives sin. Is that really a good God? If someone committed a crime, like a terrible crime, against you or against someone you love, or, or something like even what's happened in recent days here in our county, right? And, and the person who committed the crime was arrested, and they're brought before a judge, and the judge told them, hey, you know what? I like you, so don't worry about it. Why don't you just walk free? Well, listen, how would you feel about that? You would probably feel that justice had not been served. You would feel that that was actually an act of injustice. Probably, probably, right, you would be correct in saying that. A judge who did something like that would not be a good judge. He wouldn't be doing his job. And so we're left with this quandary, aren't we? This mystery. Is God a righteous judge who punishes sin, or is God a merciful father who forgives sin? And the Bible gives us the answer, and the answer, it says, is both. As you know, it says that both of these things are true at the same time, and yet it doesn't seem to make sense. They're like two railroad tracks that run parallel to each other and never seem to meet. How can those two things be true at the same time? They seem to contradict each other. It's a mystery. It's difficult to understand or explain. Here's another big mystery that the Bible presents for us. It's difficult to understand. One of the great themes of the whole Bible is whether we can have a relationship with God. And if we can have a relationship with God, is that relationship, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Think about it. Is a relationship with God conditional or unconditional? There are places in the Bible where God says, look, if you want to have a relationship with me, there are some criteria. You've got to be holy as I am holy. You have to obey me. When I say to do things, you have to do them. There are requirements that you have to meet. And yet... There are also places in the Bible where God seems to say, essentially, listen, no matter what you do, no matter how much you mess up, no matter what you do, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be faithful to you. I will never give up on you, and I will save you. So which is it? And the Bible once again says it's both. And you wonder, wait a second, how can this be? It doesn't seem to fit. It's got to be one or the other. It's either conditional or it's unconditional, right? And, and how can it be both? It's a mystery, isn't it? It's something that is difficult or even impossible to explain or understand. And for ages and for generations, for literally thousands of years, people lived with this mystery without the answer, right? That somehow God's word says that he is both just and merciful and that God's acceptance of us is both conditional and unconditional. And it was just a mystery as to how these things could, these seemingly contradictory things could both possibly be true at the same time. Until one day the mystery was revealed. Listen to what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to the saints. What is that mystery that, that was revealed, that, that was hidden for generations? What is the answer to all of these riddles? Guys, you know what the answer is? The answer is Jesus Christ. He is the answer to all of the riddles. He is the mystery revealed. Let me explain. How is it possible that God can be both completely just and yet merciful at the same time? How is it that God can be the righteous judge of all the earth who punishes sin and doesn't, doesn't let anything slide and yet be a loving father who is full of grace and, and forgiveness for wrongdoings? Here's how. 
because of Jesus, right? He's the, the piece that makes the puzzle fit. Because Jesus came and he took the penalty for your sins because God poured out his justice on him so that he could show mercy to you. In Jesus, God was completely just in dealing with sin so that towards you he could show grace and mercy. See, this was a mystery for thousands of years. And it's finally been revealed. And that brings us to the other question. Is a relationship with, with God, is it conditional or is it unconditional? And the answer is both. But how? Here's how. Jesus satisfied all the conditions of the law on your behalf so that God could accept you and love you unconditionally. Do you see how that works? Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. And let me tell you this. Jesus is the answer to the riddles of your life as well. The title of today's message is A Mystery Revealed. And here's what we're going to learn in this section so we can understand why this mystery revealed is such a big deal. First of all, we're going to talk about the question, who is Jesus? Then we're going to ask, what did Jesus do? And then we're going to see, what does it mean for our lives? What does it mean for our lives? The, the book uh, of Colossians is a letter which was written by Paul the Apostle to the Christians living in the city of Colossae, which is in southern Turkey near the city of Ephesus. It's in the region near Ephesus. Now, the pastor of the church in Colossae uh, was a man named Epaphras. He had come to Rome to meet with Paul to discuss some things that were going on in his church there. Now, some of the uh, Christians in Colossae, they were getting drawn into a set of teachings which was popular in the area where they lived. The problem in Colossae is commonly referred to as the Colossian heresy. It even has its own name, the Colossian heresy, because it was different than other heresies uh, which were present in the early days of Christianity. Like maybe you've heard of some of them, like Gnosticism, or like Judaizers who, who insisted that a person had to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. Well, there was a, a unique heresy in Colossae known as the Colossian heresy. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, right? We're trying trying to infer what it was by reading the text and how Paul argues. But we do know this. Here's what we can infer. It was kind of a, a merging, if you will, or a melding of different teachings from different religions kind of mixed together, which is interesting because that is kind of something which is popular in our day and age and here where we live as well. So even though this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago, isn't it interesting that it's so incredibly relevant to us today? And the reason for that is because the Roman Empire at that time was in very, way, very many ways similar to Western society today in the time that we live, in this sense, that it was a, it was a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, and, and in this way, People of different ethnicities and people of different religions lived side by side and worked together in, in towns next to each other. And people were free to choose in the Roman Empire what they would believe. And so very much like today, some people treated faith kind of like a salad bar, right? Like you go and pick a little bit of whatever you want and create your own religion, right? So you take a little bit of, of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of something else, right? Like you take the baby carrots and the sunflower seeds, but you leave out the croutons and the pickles, right? So you say, I'll take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddhism, a little throw in some reincarnation, maybe some karma, but I'm going to say no thanks to the divine judgment. And this is what people, many people do in our day as well. The problem is that to do this means that you are saying that the ultimate test of whether or not you believe something is true 
is whether or not you like it or how you feel about it, right? And, and, and this, it seems that this kind of thinking was popular in Colossae as well. And that many Christians were actually being drawn into this kind of thinking and drawn away from true and pure Christianity. So in Colossae, right, there was a mixture of Judaism mixed with local pagan beliefs and philosophies with a little bit of Jesus thrown in for good measure. And so Paul responded to this by writing this letter. And in this letter, he focuses more on the solution than he talks about the problem. Rather than going into detail about what was wrong with the Colossian heresy, Paul knew that what the Colossians needed to be reminded of was of the true gospel. That's where they needed to spend their time and give their focus, focusing not on what was wrong with the Colossian heresy, but instead who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what it meant for their lives, knowing that the real thing, knowing the real thing is always the best protection against counterfeits. And I'll tell you this, in the problems that you are struggling with, the problems that we are struggling with, the solution for us is very similar. It's the same as the solution was for them. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're facing in your life, the gospel speaks to that situation in some way. The gospel speaks to that situation in some way, whether it's a, a problem at work or in, in relationships, whether it's an illness or whether it's fear of something, you need to hear the simple and yet incredibly profound and far-reaching message of the gospel. Here is who Jesus is. Here is what Jesus has accomplished, and here is how that affects your life moving forward. Well, the first question that Paul deals with in this section is an incredibly important one. It is the question of who is Jesus? So let's go ahead and read from verses 15 to 19. Here's what Paul says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What you believe about Jesus is pretty important, more important than you might assume at first. See, all historians agree. This isn't really argued by historians, that Jesus was a real person who lived 2,000 years ago in Israel. He was attributed with performing many miracles, and he was executed on a Roman cross, and he allegedly rose from the dead. Those are the historical facts. It doesn't take really any amount of faith to believe that those things are true, right? Historians have said there's enough proof that that should just be obvious to everyone. Everyone should believe that. But here's the issue that really matters. The reason Jesus was executed is because he claimed to be God. That, that's the reason he was executed. And the Jewish people in Jerusalem considered that blasphemy. And you know what? They would have been right if Jesus was, was not actually God. Okay? So they considered that blasphemy. And the Romans considered it political subversion because he was claiming to be greater than Caesar. And so the question is this, was Jesus God or was he not God? That's a very important question. I recently was visiting with a friend from, a friend of mine from, from back in high school, and we got to talking about Christianity. My friend uh, is still undecided. He's on the fence when it comes to Christianity. And he mentioned this quote from Benjamin Franklin. Here's the quote. Benjamin Franklin said this, 
Jesus of Nazareth gave us the best system of morals and religion the world has ever seen. Whether or not he was divine doesn't really matter. And what I told my friend was, look, as much as I respect Benjamin Franklin, I think he was completely wrong. Because here's the thing. Some of the things that Jesus said were very radical. They were extremely radical. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed that God, the Father, sent him into the world to save people's souls from judgment. Jesus claimed that no one could come to God except through him. Jesus claimed that he alone had the power to forgive sins. And Jesus claimed, again, that he was God. And, and when he was asked for proof, Jesus said, here's your proof. I'm going to die. And when I die, you know, set your clock because I'm going to rise on the third day. So either those things were true or they weren't true. If they were true, it means that Jesus is God, he is who he says he, he was, and we should therefore worship him. Now, if they're not true, though, if those things didn't really happen, then Jesus either intentionally misled people, either he intentionally lied about those things, or he was delusional and crazy. Right? So either he knew he was lying, or he didn't realize it, but it wasn't true anyway, which means that he was delusional. So we have three options. Either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord as he claimed to be. But there's no way for him to simply be a good teacher of morality. You see, the people in Jesus' day who met him and they heard him speak, they, they reacted to Jesus in one of two ways in one of two ways. Either they opposed him and wanted to kill him, or they, they laid down their lives to follow him. But you know what nobody did? Nobody said, oh, he's a pretty nice guy, and just moved on, right? They understood his claims, that they were that radical, and they're either true or they're not. The truth is, you can't afford to, if you really take what Jesus says, you cannot be indifferent about him. Because if you take him on his own terms, he will not allow you to simply like him or be fond of him. He, he won't allow you to just take him as a nice guy. He requires that you make him your Lord. And the reason for that is because he's not just another good person or another good teacher. He is God come to earth on a rescue mission. Now, this is an important and essential element of the gospel. You know, at, at, it, it's a it's a point which Paul makes emphatically here. And his point is this. Who is Jesus? His answer is, Jesus is God. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says this. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's an interesting passage because John is speaking about Jesus, and he refers to him as the only God who has made God known. In other words, Jesus is God, and in Jesus, God is fully revealed. If you want to know what God is like, in other words, look at Jesus. He is the image or the manifestation, the revelation of the invisible God. Now, no one has ever seen God. God is a spirit. And the Bible says that if anyone were to ever see God's glory, in full force, it would be so powerful that it would kill you. But here's what's so amazing about heaven. When you see the glory of God in heaven, it says there that you will see it with unveiled eyes. Even when we see angels, like in, in the book of uh, Isaiah chapter 6, we see these angels before the throne of God. And what are they doing? They're covering their eyes. But think about this. It says that when we see God in his glory, we'll do so with unveiled faces. You know why? Because 
you'll already be dead, right? What are you going to do? Die some more? In heaven, you won't be able to die more. It says in the book of Revelation, the sun will be no more, and the glory of God will be our light. How powerful is that? Brighter, more powerful than the sun. Jesus is the very image of God, the manifestation, the revelation of God come to us in human flesh. Next, it says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's a word that, that trips a few people up, isn't it? The word firstborn here trips people up in some cases because they assume that it's referring to chronology, firstborn, secondborn, or they assume that it means firstborn refers to uh, Genesis or origin, right? That he had a beginning. Well, listen, the firstborn, the term firstborn here, it doesn't refer to chronology and it doesn't refer to origin. It refers instead to supremacy in rank. Now, this is something that ancient people would have understood. Now, let me explain why. Because it's the Greek word here, prototokos. Or proto, yeah, prototokos. And here's what it means. It refers to something that, that was common in almost all ancient cultures, which is something called the law of primogeniture. Now stick with me on this, okay? The law of primogeniture, which basically just simply meant this. The firstborn son gets all the wealth of the father, but not only that, he gets the father's status and all the power of the father. Therefore, a firstborn son was essentially equal to the father, equal to the father in every way. And that is why this title is used of Jesus in several places, which I have there in the notes for you. In no way does the title firstborn mean that Jesus is less than God or that he was created by God. It's a term of supremacy of rank. In fact, check this out. The Jewish rabbis sometimes referred to God as the firstborn of the world. The firstborn of the world. Now, they under, when they use that term, they're not speaking of origin. They're not speaking of, of chronology. What it means is that God is supreme, supreme over all the world. There is none who is higher or of greater rank than him. Now, here's, here's how we know that that's what Paul means here, and, and not origin or chronology, but rather supremacy. Here's how we know. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. So everything that was created was created by Jesus, meaning that anything that has a beginning had its beginning with him, which means that he did not have a beginning. So everything that was created was created through him. Therefore, it follows that he himself was not created. So the Bible says that God is the creator of all things. Here it tells us that Jesus is the creator of all things, which again tells us this, that Jesus is God in the same way that the Father is God. He is beginningless. He is the creator and, and not at all less than God or inferior to God. He is rather God. He is God. It goes on to say this in verse 19, all the fullness of the God uh, of God dwelt in him, Jesus. Now, maybe, maybe you're like me in this way, that when you hear 
that God is one God in three persons, maybe you know you picture in your mind like a pie, a pie divided into three parts, a pie made of God's stuff with three slices. But Paul says, no, that's not how it works. All of the fullness of God is in Jesus. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dwell within each other. There is not a single attribute of God which is not in Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus fully God, but God is fully in Jesus Christ. This is an unequivocal declaration of the absolute deity of Jesus and the absolute supremacy of Jesus above all things. And what that means is that it's not enough for Jesus to be your buddy. It's not enough for him to be your buddy. It's not enough for you to like him or to think that he's a good person. He has to be your Lord if, in fact, this is true. Well, listen, as God... Uh, not only did Jesus create all things, but verse 17 tells us that in him all things hold together. You know what that means? It means that apart from him, everything falls apart. The reason we have an orderly cosmos rather than a disorderly chaos is because Jesus is Lord over it. And the question is this, is your life a cosmos or a chaos? Right? The, the universe is a cosmos or an orderly system rather than a chaos because Jesus is Lord over it. He holds it all together. To the degree that you have your life under his lordship, your life will also hold together. To the degree that it is not under his lordship, it will not hold together. It has been said that what makes your life fall apart is not what happens to you, but how you react to it. If sickness comes into your life or you lose your job, will your life fall apart? That depends on what you'll do or won't do. It depends on how much you and your life are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In him, all things hold together. In him, you will hold together as well. If he has the power to hold together the cosmos, then don't you think he has the power to hold you together as well by his lordship? How will you bring your life under his lordship? Well, let's talk about that here in just a minute. But this is who Jesus is. He is God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things, including your life. And here's why that matters. Because in order for him to be your redeemer, in order for him to be able to save you, uh, he couldn't have just been another person. Only God could pay a debt this big. And what that means is that if Jesus is God, then God who created you and who knows even your deepest secrets and your darkest thoughts, he loved you so much that he was willing to give everything for you. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, you can be sure then that he does in fact love you. This is the proof of what he did for you. So let's talk about that. That's our next question. What did Jesus do? Notice what it says in verse 18. After telling us that Jesus is God, it tells us something incredible. That though he was God, he died. Isn't that interesting? Though he was God, he has died. The one who is beginningless, who created all things, the fullness of God dwells in him, and yet he died. God became flesh, and he lived, and he spoke, and he touched, but he also sweat, and he bled, and he died. But he didn't stay dead. That's the good news of the gospel. He rose from the grave. Why? Verse 18, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus rose from the dead in order to prove that he was God as he claimed to be and that he had victory over the power of even death itself and so that through him we too might rise to eternal life. In verse 20, we read this. In him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what Jesus did. Uh, he reconciled us to God. That's what he did. That's the answer, what he did. And in verse 21, it tells us about our need for reconciliation. Let's look at verse 21 here. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. As human beings, right, we are born naturally into a state of alienation from God. Being uh, belonging to the race of Adam, we are alienated from God by nature. But then as individuals, we also choose to act in ways that are contrary to God's will. And the result of all of that is that we end up with an unreconciled relationship to God because of our unclean condition that we're first born with, but then also the things that we do. We have a broken relationship because of our actions. And verse 22 tells us the way of reconciliation. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God himself took on human flesh and he paid your debt so that he took on your uncleanness so that you could be made clean. In other words, God didn't, he didn't meet you halfway. He didn't say, I'll do half and you do half and we'll meet in the middle. No, God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all the way for you. And he invites you then to accept that, to accept what he's done for you. In other words, what Jesus offers you is not merely forgiveness. It's a change of status. To, your status becomes holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, as this verse tells us. So this is what Jesus has done for us. He has reconciled us to God. He has given us a new status before God. He has saved you and changed your eternal destiny. And that brings us to our final question. What does this mean for our lives? What does it mean for our lives? All these things are true for us, verse 23, if indeed... So these things are true for us if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Remember the reason for this letter, the Colossians were being drawn away from the gospel. They were being encouraged to embrace another message, one which considered Jesus to not be unique, which considered Jesus not be of of particular importance. And Paul is telling them, look, Jesus isn't just another guru. He's not just another teacher. Jesus is God. And as God, he came and he shed his blood on the cross in order to provide the only way for you to be made right with God. And he's saying, don't walk away from that. Don't, don't give up on that. Don't trade that in for something else. These are things which are not just generally true of all people. They are true for those who embrace the gospel and who receive Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. So, Paul says, so continue in the faith. Remember the hope of the gospel. Treasure it in your hearts and minds because this is the only hope by which we can be saved. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we have the strength to actually continue in the faith, right? Do we just tell ourselves, Come on now, keep continuing in the faith. How do we get the strength to be the people God's calling us to be? Well, the good news is that that comes from God as well. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You want to know the secret? The secret to being steadfast, the secret to becoming the person that God calls you to be, here it is, that Jesus, who is God, came and lived and died on a cross. He overcame sin, and he even conquered death itself. And when you put your faith in him, when you embrace who he is and what he did for you, he comes and dwells inside of you. God himself will be directly and personally present in your life. He will work in you from within to transform you and empower you to do his will and the things he calls you to do. Look at these final two verses, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying, I do everything I can to live out God's plan for my life and to do God's will. But as I do it, I know that he is inside of me and he is giving me the strength to do those things. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that the power, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead, God's power which raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in us who believe. How is that possible? Because of this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let me ask you, do you need strength in your life? I know I do. Do you need power? Are there things that you know that God wants you to do, and yet you feel sometimes that you are not strong enough to do them on your own? Maybe you struggle with an addiction. Maybe you struggle, struggle with an old habit or a sinful pattern of behavior that you want to put behind you, but you feel that you are unable to or incapable of doing it. Maybe you desire to know God in a deeper way and to do God's will for your life, to be a godly person and live in a way that is pleasing to him. Consider this. The same God who created the universe and holds it together, the one who commanded the stars to go where he wanted them to go, the one who holds the cosmos together, the God who overcame death, if you have embraced him and what he did for you, he dwells within you, and he is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. The message of the cross is that God not only loves you and saves you, but he also goes beyond that and indwells you and enables you and empowers you to do his will and live for him. Then what's your part in this? Your part is to say yes to embrace that good news and say yes to his lordship over your lives. It is to have the attitude of Paul the Apostle who said this, for this I toil, on the one hand, struggling with all whose energy? His energy. Isn't that interesting? His energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying, I give my all for him who gave all of himself for me. And in the end, even that 
is a work of his grace, doing for me what I cannot do for myself. The mystery revealed, how can God be both completely righteous and yet radically merciful? How can God be both a, ra a righteous judge and a gracious friend? How can God be both exacting injustice and yet forgiving of sins? How can it be that in order to have a relationship with God, we must meet certain criteria which we are incapable of meeting, and yet God says there is a way for you to have a relationship with him. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all of the riddles. And when you really understand the gospel, that in Christ, God hasn't just met you halfway, that he has gone all the way for you, and now he invites you to accept what he has done for you, not only to save you, but to empower you. When you really understand that, it causes you to say, like Paul the Apostle did, I will give all of myself for him who gave all of himself for me. And it caused you to realize that the only hope of glory you have is not found in anything you can do. It's not found in being good enough or trying hard enough. It is only found in the promise of Jesus Christ in you, him saving you, working in you, and transforming you into a new person. And when you realize that, you realize that Jesus can't just be another good teacher. He can't just be your buddy. He has to be your Lord. The mystery revealed, Christ in you, that is the hope of glory. So may you be strengthened, as Paul says here. I'll pray that prayer over us tonight. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace towards us. We thank you for what you have done and accomplished for us on our behalf because of your great love. And Lord, we want to be those who, who say yes, yes, Lord. Uh, and we turn to you and we ask that just as you hold the cosmos together, Lord, we know that you are more than capable of holding our lives together as well. And so, Lord, we hand our lives over to you, saying, Lord, take us. Lord, thank you that you want to take us. Lord, thank you that you want a relationship with us. We want to embrace that by faith. We want to embrace your grace and receive all that you have for us. And we do that tonight in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.